tell you guys. It has been over 36 hours now since federal agents first confronted a heavily armed religious cult near Waco. The cult actually called or known as the Branch Davidians is an offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The marshals moved in in force tonight. We say marshals, we're not really sure what kind of agents they are. We know for sure that they are federal agents of some sort. Waco, Texas, 1993. Global media is holding the world spellbound during a 51-day siege. They're spinning the tale of a deranged cult leader, David Koresh, and his crazed followers surrounded by armed agents from the FBI and the ATF. The siege culminates in a fiery blaze where the entire compound is burnt to the ground, with 76 men, women and children perishing on the Texas plains. The media and authorities said Waco was a mass suicide, and the world believed them. What really happened? People know they were not told the whole truth. Shine presents Waco, The Inside Story, a podcast series featuring Waco survivor David Thibodeau. My name is Julian Knoll, and along with Andre Rowell, we ask, what have we learned since 1993? Could Waco happen again? Today we are speaking with David Thibodeau, Waco survivor, author, drummer, seeker of the truth. David is one of only nine people to walk out of the howling inferno that engulfed and killed 76 of his close friends and fellow Christians. He has been challenging the government and mainstream media's version of the narrative surrounding this dark moment in the history of America. This is his story. My first question, is to you, Andre, why are you creating or co-creating this podcast? I think I'm, well, I'm drawn to David. Um, and I'm drawn to, to stories of survival. And, uh, you know, people who, people who have lived their lives outside of outside of the norm and outside of uh, the conventional way of doing things and people who have and within themselves you know searched for uh, searched for meaning elsewhere and and I think there's I think there's there's a whole lot of there are a whole lot of perceptions around Waco and there are a whole lot of perceptions around the people involved um, and those perceptions aren't necessarily uh, real as well. They're not defined by reality. They're defined by this other thing that's going on. Uh, so it's important for me to be a part of countering that, countering this media manipulation, I guess. Yeah, look, for me, the reason I'm involved with the creation of this, this podcast is... Um, for 25 years, I'd walked around with the idea that what had occurred in Waco was a bunch of crazy Christians uh, led by this guy who had seduced everybody into following his his view of the world and his view of religion, and that they had all basically killed themselves in this grand inferno in the middle of Texas. And I, along with the rest of the world for, you know, 51 days, um, had watched this this drama unfold, um, 
and then had formed the opinion that, yeah, you know, whatever I heard on mainstream media was what actually happened. And then I saw the TV show, um, which really offered a very different perspective that there were dynamics there uh, with, with the, between the government and between their, you know, the, the two agencies that were controlling the narrative. And then in fact, the government controlled the story that went to mainstream media and to begin to hear what was happening on the inside and what was happening um, amongst the people from the people who were inside the siege I was really devastated um, that I had um, not so much been duped, but that I had believed the mainstream narrative. So I then reached out to David just really by way of saying, look, I'm so sorry this happened to you. And I just wanted to apologize to him for, um, for um, holding him and all of these people in, in such a way that was really derogatory to them. And uh, we then went on to form a friendship. Uh, and I found you know, David to be a really remarkable human being. And I wanted to be involved to tell a different story. You know, what was the story and what was the impact on him and what has been the impact on him in the ensuing decades? So, so David, what has been the impact on you personally? Well, it depends on the era, the era of my life. So obviously, after, directly after, I was very at peace with everything. My attorney at the time actually said that I know a lot of people in the world that David Thibodeau is one of the most. David Thibodeau is one of the people that are the most at peace with themselves of anyone that I know. I always thought that was an interesting quote that's from my attorney at the time and it just it just was I just accepted that what had happened had happened that I was a witness and I survived I had some survivor's guilt I was able to move on from that and really I just started giving talks to people and talking about my experience and that opened up a whole different av avenue of, of things of stuff but I had a couple of questions I was in reading the autopsy reports for me and noticing that there were several people who had bullet holes to the center of the head and the center of their chest. And the autopsy reports, that obviously is not conducive of a mass suicide. That's more of an execution style or someone shooting you from afar as you're maybe exiting a building. I never understood those autopsy reports and they bothered me. Um, the sounds that I, re but this is important because I remember when the, the tanks were taking the gymnasium area down it was incredibly loud if you can imagine a crunching on a supersonic level it's like a tank coming through a gymnasium where all people's private things are stored I personally had a chest of drawers in there with all my personal belongings everyone had their personal stuff in the gym and the tanks are coming through and leveling into the ground shaking the entire building and I've been trying to think of my responses to some of these sounds. I blocked, I think, some of it out. But that just was incredibly loud. The tanks entering the building was incredibly loud. And later on, what had happened was when William Gazeki and Mike McNulty were putting together the documentary, Wake All the Rules of Engagement, the one that was nominated for an Oscar, 
they had an infrared video they wanted to show me. They told me that the plane, the FBI had a plane flying above Mount Carmel, about a mile above the building that morning. And they said that they were filming infrared technology, which is thermal imagery. So anything that is hot shows up as white. Anything that is cool. David, David, David. Yeah. I don't want the story. I want to know. I want to know about you. I want to know how this has impacted you. Well, I'm getting to that. No, that's what I want to know now. It has impacted me when I first saw the infrared and I saw that people were being shot. I first saw the evidence of people being shot. That changed everything for me. I went from being able to talk about it peacefully to being incredibly angry and not being able to control myself in front of an audience because of that rage and anger. Even despite having been through all the other stuff, the uh, trials in San Antonio, nothing affected me worse than seeing the infrared videotape. So then it was so, kind of a game changer. I so, had to walk away. So, so why, why did that, why did that impact you? It was my worst. It was kind of my worst fears come true. I mean, I the autopsy reports indicated to me that people were executed trying to exit the building. In other words, the FBI is saying everyone come out. We want everyone to come out now, peacefully. You know, their words were we want to save as many people as possible. But their deeds were exactly the opposite of that. And that could be the tanks entering the building, the amount of CS gas they used, all the lies they told during the course of the 51 days. So it changed everything for me. I was no longer able to be in control of myself and my anger. I had to walk away. I had a very short fuse. I became a different person. And it was just really interesting how it triggered me. The sight of of the people being shot put me into a whole different category as a human being. It's things I'd never experienced on a level I'd never experienced either. So what did you experience and how did you deal with it? Well, I wasn't able to function properly as an individual. I mean, I was, I ended up getting separated from my wife and my child. I ended up getting a divorce over the course of time. I wasn't very pleasant. Um, I wasn't a tyrant, but I was just angry. I just had this deep, sense of just anger, just lack of justice. I, it's hard to explain how bad it was, but very short tempered. Someone cut me off in traffic. For example, I would fly off the handle. There was no ramp up. The ramp up was, it was, it was instantaneous. And I just didn't, you know, know how to control that. It was very, it was strange for me. It wasn't the person that I was or had, had been before. I was, it was like this new David. This angry David, <clears throat> and I didn't know what to do about it. So you know, I started uh, drinking. You know, I started drinking. I started uh, smoking pot, whatever you know, whatever was available, um, just to try to kill the pain. I mean, I went for a two-week period, and I, and I was functioning. I was living in Austin. I had a job. I was doing pretty well. But I, for about two weeks, I just I asked to go crazy. I kept praying for God to make me go nuts, so I wouldn't have to deal with the reality of my situation. Uh, understanding what I understood and knowing that everyone else understands something totally different from what my experience was about Waco. So it came to the point where I just didn't care about anything anymore. My family, myself especially, maybe subconsciously, I was trying to, I didn't, I wasn't suicidal, I didn't want to kill myself, but I was definitely not doing good things for to my body. 
So what was happening on the inside for you? What was the battle inside? You know, I think I was just trying to avoid the pain at any cost. I was trying to anesthetize myself. I was trying to self-medicate. You know, it was just a, it was a torment. It was always, it was just the problem was so big and I was one little person. What, 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 take me through the inner landscape. What were you trying to anesthetize? I don't know. I was, it was just, it was just pain. It was all pain. It was all such a lack of justice. Myself and for all the people that died, I, I, I don't know. I didn't, I guess I never really thought of it in that term. I don't know. I just know that I wanted to go crazy. I just remember very distinctively not wanting to deal with reality anymore. It was just too much to handle. But I also knew being a person of faith that I wasn't going to kill myself. I didn't want to end the pain that way. I knew I had to go through it. Yeah, that I was very conscious of. I knew that I had to have this experience. But instead of, instead of taking it, that, that, that was a moment of power for me. That's where I could have been a speaker, overcome it and moved on. But instead, I think I chose alcohol and drugs. And so I felt like I lost a lot of my power when I made that decision to go down that road. But at the same time, I couldn't see any other way around it. God wasn't allowing me to go crazy. I wasn't breaking with the reality, so I chose another avenue. I remember that very distinctly. So tell me a little bit about your, at that time, what was your day-to-day -day life like? You were living in Austin, you said you had a job. What were you doing? I had a really good job, actually. I was working for a computer marketing company. And what I did is I was a lead generator. I would work on, uh, I would work on, oh, Hewlett Packard laser jet line or the Cisco systems uh, routers. And what I would do is I would call CEOs, CFOs, COOs, uh, vice presidents of big companies, Fortune 500 companies, and basically ask what their budget was for whatever product I was selling at the time. Let's say laser jet printers. And I would talk to those people, find out how many they needed, and then get that to my superiors who would then get to the sales force of those big companies. So we were just cutting out a lot of phone time for the big companies, lead generation. And I was very good at it. I got to know the, 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 my boss, the CEO, very well, and I would hang out with him on the weekends and we'd do marketing campaigns. And uh, I moved up pretty quickly just because I, for some, uh, some reason I got to know the boss, he found out that I was the Waco guy and he was a very intriguing individual and he wanted to meet me. And I ended up spending a lot of time hanging out with him and learning things. At the same time, after three and a half years of doing this, I looked in the mirror and saw myself in the white shirt and the tie and just decided this was not me and I didn't want to do it anymore. So it seems like I've been giving a lot of opportunities in life and then once I, I hit a certain plateau, I walk away from it. Because really, I just set out to be a musician. All I wanted to do was make my living as a drummer. That's all I wanted. I didn't want to be an author. I didn't, you know, I never saw a six part series that's not what I set out to do. I set out to be a drummer. I just wanted to tour and make music for people and make a living at it. 
And for some reason, I was not able to achieve that. It was all these other things that I achieved quite by accident. So in a lot of ways, my life's been a failure. <laughs> it's kind of how I look at it. It's, uh, failure recording. It's taken on more a more important dimension, though, and I, and I do recognize that. Can we go back? Can we just go back a little bit? Uh, so before before you know we got into kind of what you're doing day to day, can we just go back to that pain and what was the what was the real root cause for that? Because there are a number of aspects to that pain that you talk about. There was, you know, going through what you had seen, losing. Uh, loved ones losing losing friends but then also wrapped around that as kind of the injustice and the the manipulation of the story around that and knowing as you say knowing one thing but having everyone around you seeing a different perception of it you know can you break down what what was really the components of that pain and that anger for you and how you know how you were trying to process that Wow, dude, that's intense, Andre. I've never, I've never thought of this. This is really good. Um, all right, so I suppose a lot of the pain and anger was survivors' guilt. I survived; they didn't. Um, I once said to David, right before the siege, I said, "I don't know if you're going to get it, if we're going to get attacked, or if." Uh, you know, God, people are going to come here and want to know the message or no matter what happens. I said, I just know I don't want to be without the group. And David stopped and stared at me for the longest time and didn't say anything. And I knew that at that moment that nothing was going to happen to me. And this is before anyone knew anything that was going to happen. But I knew I was going to be a witness and a survivor. And I knew that I wasn't going to be touched. I don't know how I knew that, but I just did. So I guess, you know, a lot of that was coming to terms with what my role in this was, as being the witness. And I'm happy to have survived. I'm happy to have been the witness. I did not anticipate all the other stuff that was going to come with it. The pain, as you say, you know, losing so many people. I didn't even think about, for 25 years, I have not thought of what happened in the walk-in cooler until I saw, until I saw the the six-part series being made and the image of the tank going in and putting so much gas in there that everyone was basically killed from the CS gas, choking on it, the kids especially. I refused to let my mind see that vision. Even though I kind of knew what happened, I, I would read it, but I, I wouldn't see it visually. And during the course of that series, when they were filming that scene, it was the first time I saw it visually. And it was incredibly powerful. So I blocked out a lot of things. There's a lot of things that even in my research and doing the book, I, 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 saw, I, was, I was able to read it, write it, and move on from it, but not dwell on it. So I think the kids now have even a more impact than they did then. No, that's not true. The kids have always had an impact. And when I'm mad at God for everything that happens, I... I I feel like a child yelling at God for that voice, for being, not having a choice in it, and just having to sit there and be gassed and take it. And those are the moments to me that it's, um, are very, very intense emotionally, I guess. You know, my yell at God sessions, and that's what I call them. 
because um, I don't deal with the pain anymore by getting drunk and doing whatever is available. I'm, you know, I'm an older man now. And um, I kind of wanted that power back. A long time ago, I wanted that power back. And that's why I left Austin. I, I moved back with family members. I moved up, up to Maine and just started playing drums in a band. I got my aggression out on the weekends by playing drums for audiences of people. So I, I dealt with things differently than I did then. But I think that I had to go through all that process. I don't think that I could have gone through this without doing what I did back when I lived in Austin. Being that person that was just like the party guy, I just had to be, you know, have the perfect buzz on at all times to, to deal with it all. Definitely. But it's been a weird journey, man. You can kind of beat yourself up a little bit about uh, drugs and alcohol and and that kind of thing. But do you think, if you kind of look at it in retrospect, do you think that's there's an element of survival in that? You know, like blocking something out and just kind of, you know, did you maybe need to go through that? I absolutely think that there was an element of survival in the self-medication phase of life um, after all that. But I remember distinctly knowing and saying, you're giving up your power. That right now as a survivor of Waco and what you've been through, you have an amazing amount of power. All you have to do is learn the power of the soundbite, come up with responses to things, and say them in front of a camera very quickly. Like Bill Clinton saying, if a bunch of religious fanatics want to kill themselves, what can the federal government do about that? That's a very powerful soundbite. And maybe if I had Bill Clinton's writers <laughs> going through that process, I could have mastered the soundbite. But as of such on my own, I was not able to do that. Um, so the point is that would have been great had I been able to do that and have been that person. But I wasn't able to. So, David, uh, but really, how has this um, impacted your relationship with God? I thought this was going to be easy. How has this impacted my relationship with God? I got to tell you, it's made me, God's always been there. I've always, I've always believed in God, even before. It wasn't Sunday school. It wasn't being raised by a Catholic grandmother, French grandmother, who made me say my prayers every night. None of that were my reasons for my belief in God. Very early on, I remember seeing a bum and I remember some people making fun of that bum and it made me angry that they were making fun of this person who was obviously far less, far less off than they were. I just was always in tune to a higher purpose. I always realized that the good gets slaughtered for whatever reason, be it someone uh, someone that's as beloved as Kennedy or Gandhi or Martin Luther King. It seemed that all the good ones always get this filled, this filled my worldview. The good people get killed and some of the nastier people in life get to live their entire full lives. I've never understood why, but there has to be a reason for it, right? Um, so God's always been there. I, the day before, like two or three days before I met David Koresh, I was working at a Man's Chinese Theater in the gift shop, 
with a stupid red smock on. I looked up, I said, God, who, who, are you, who am I supposed to meet here? Can you introduce me to the people I'm supposed to meet? And I was thinking my Jimmy Page and Robert Plant or, you know, or someone like that. I ended up meeting, it, it ended up being literally two or three days later, Steve Schneider and David Koresh. And they're still in my life 26 years later. They're still in my life daily being here and with the series coming out and people wanting to know. Um, so that's just it. You have to, I had to embrace my destiny, I guess, or my fate. And that's literally why I'm here on this call with you guys. So how has all of this impacted you and your relationship with God and or the divine? I just know that there's a greater force that is eking out my daily reality that I'm not aware of. Certain paths you take, certain things you do, taking the left turn instead of the right turn. I just always believed there was something more about it than what I wanted or what my will was. So I know it's there. I know it's powerful. I've always believed in it. Um, probably more. So, I was no, not more so now. It's probably lessened. I mean, I was willing to die with the group. I was willing to die for God. I wasn't going to kill for God. I was willing to die for God. I don't know if I'm that willing now. Maybe I am. It seems like I was stronger of faith then than I am now. It's like the more I learn, the more I go on in life, and the more I see it for what it is, the more it seems to be some kind of weird facade that I can't quite understand. But I just know there's something greater behind it. I just know... I could never be an atheist, let me put it that way. And there's part of me that thinks that my life would be a lot better if I could. What, what, what role, what role do you feel God played and is playing in all of this? Okay, I'm gonna try to give you the most simple question, answer I can with that, which is very complicated. I almost feel like the role God's playing with this, with Dave and with this whole message and with what happened here, is that God for some reason is pers personally being a stumbling block and he wants you, the casual viewer, to judge an individual for his actions because he seems so deplorable as an individual. He's made out to have been so deplorable. Um, that you're going to instantly want to judge this person and say there's no help for this person in God. No one can save David Koresh. No one can save him. There's just, how could these people have followed such a complete manipulator? I, I think it's supposed to look like that. Scripturally, it's supposed to look like that. Like we're men wondered at, like we're a bunch of confused sheep that followed someone down a wrong path. And I've never looked at it that way. I personally have never looked at it that way. I think that there was more truth here. Script. If the Bible is true, if it isn't, it isn't. If it is true, there's, there was more truth in the scripture here than any other individual or readings or teachings I've ever read in my life. And that is all in the opening of the seals. As you go through them one by one, you see it clearer and clearer and clearer. So for me, I think that this place is a giant, huge stumbling block and everyone is supposed to misjudge it for a later, greater purpose. It could be to glorify God in the judgment. I, I don't really know for sure. So in terms, in terms of your relationship 
with God, your personal relationship with God and understanding of God, how has this impacted you? I don't, I don't know. I, I think that I view my relationship with God very differently than what any other Christian or religious person would. Most religious people are looking for direct connection to God, especially people that I find believe in Jesus, really have that personal connection with Him. They hear Him in their hearts, they, they ask a question and He answers them. I have never had that whatsoever kind of experience with any deity. I've never asked for something and a voice has said, this is the path you should go. It's more of a consciousness thing. I know right or wrong, just like the devil on the shoulder and the angel on one shoulder. You just know what you should do. I don't hear a voice, okay? So when some of these Christians say, I prayed about it and I got an answer, I, I don't get that. I never have understood that. That doesn't work that way. The other thing I think that makes it this place true and it goes back to the seventh day adventist thing between um keeping the sabbath um keeping the laws of god if you will it's the old and the new testament not just the old te the new testament doing away with the old testament but the way that this group here believes that that it's all in all and they work together um, you don't see that in your in your most Christian movements. This was Genesis to Revelation. What does it say? What does it mean? How is it tied together? And can we untie that bond? Can we open those seals? How is the book sealed? You know, it, to me, it was more of an intellectual David, study than a doctrinization. David, it really seems to me that you're avoiding the question. See, I don't think I am. Mm. I'm trying yeah, to get yeah, no, you're trying to give me some scripted Hollywood answer. I want the truth, David. I don't, I, I don't want the Hollywood version. I don't want the, the scripted, I've thought this all through and this is my chance to tell the world, you know, I'm an angry man. I want to know what what really is going on for you. Well, you may have to help pull that out of me. Because mm. I'm, I'm not sure. I think I'm trying to be as honest as I can with my feelings about it. I don't know if feelings is even the right word here. Because at this point, there's a lot of things about scripture that drive me absolutely insane. I think you're totally wrong. Um, they don't serve any moral purpose today. You know, I mean, if uh, the, a lot of the Deuteronomy stuff, especially, um, it doesn't mean it didn't serve a moral purpose for people thousands of years ago. Um, but what does it serve today? You know, so, you know, I don't, that's why I stay open to other things. Um, I'm personally probably more attracted to a Buddhist philosophy of peace and letting things live and live their lives and be, be whatever they are, but I'm not a vegetarian. So therefore, <laughs> obviously it's kind of hard to, to, to think everything should have their life if I'm still eating burgers. Further to Joseph's question is, is the relationship with God or the divine, is that is that important to you? It is important to me. I think in my actions, it's not important to me. I don't live my life every moment like God is directly in, in, in involved in it. But just me even being back here at Mount Carmel 26 years later, giving tours to people is a miracle in a lot of ways. 
It's nothing I set out to do on my own. It had to do with the connection I made with a certain person who came down here and started helping people out that I care about. And then coming here and having great conversations with this individual who we're going to have to have interviews with and has really kind of tied a lot of people together here and is doing good works for the people that went through this hell. So now my life's kind of taken on a different focus. It's not trying to escape what happened for 25 years, but now 25 years later, embracing what happened, getting to the truth of it more, talking to the people that nobody even knows exist or nobody wants to hear, and maybe even talking to some of the retractors who left um, David before I even came into the group, um, who to me were always kind of part of the reason why everyone was killed. People like Mark, people like the Buns, people like anyone that had left the group and walked away. But I never had any animosity to any individuals like that, other than the fact that I know that they were active in getting the authorities involved for whatever their reasons are. So, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of work to do here still. And I think that it can benefit generations to come. And that's what excites me right now is not what I, what I've been through, obviously, but it's, it's, what can we do? What can we do now? At the end of all this, what are my works going to be? Am I going to be the guy that just for years I sat back, I didn't try to escape it, but I didn't embrace it. I didn't try to make my living off Waco. I was just a drummer. I went back to being a drummer. Hmm. If we go back to that question that Jules asked before, how do you, how has this, how has this event and the, 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 you know, the last 25, six years of dealing with it, how has this shaped your relationship with yourself? Do you think that you are at the end of it, a better person? Do you like who you've become? I hate who I am. I hate who I am physically though. I don't hate who I am as an individual. Um, I wish I would have done more. I've wasted a lot of time over the past 25 years, and I'm ashamed of the time I've wasted. I'm ashamed that I didn't seek out people like yourselves earlier and try to use the power I could have had instead of kind of giving away to what we discussed earlier. I'm really ashamed of the waste of time, but at the same time, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed wasting time. I didn't, I don't think I got this big I was always a big guy. In high school, I was a big guy. I was, you know, 250 in high school. That's pretty big for a high school kid. Um, I lost a lot of weight to go to Hollywood. I had a motivation. And then during Mount Carmel, the 51-day diet plan, the two MREs a day, you're going to lose a lot of weight. That's probably 1,200 calories a day. That's how you lose weight. I'm not able to do that again. I've never had very good control over my eating habits. or and I've definitely never been a very physical person other than being a drummer. So I think maybe there's a subconscious part of me that is trying, has been trying to kill myself one way or another. You know, I mean, I smoked for many years. I recently quit. I'm trying to lose weight, but it's not working. <laughs> it just doesn't work for me. Um, but maybe there's a part of me that gained all this weight to protect myself from people. If I have to break it down, I think that's why I enjoy eating. I mean, I'm not going to lie there. And I don't have a very good metabolism, I'm not gonna lie there. I don't like walking miles a day, and that's really what I have to do if I'm gonna make any changes, and I'm hoping I can get to that point. 
but I think I spent a lot of time maybe protecting myself. I've had some bad relationships with women. So I think there's a part of me that wants to keep to not be that attractive. So I don't have to deal with having someone that intimate in my life. That's just going to come in and fuck it up more when my life's already, if I look at the past, other people consider my life already as being very fucked up. I don't look at it that way. I look at it like I've very, yeah. It's like I've always said, and I've said it before, I'll say it again. I, I, I wouldn't wish my, my experience on my worst enemy, but I wouldn't give my experience up for all the money in the world either. So like I said, I know I was meant to go through this for whatever reason. Uh, maybe I could have handled it better, but I handled it how I handled it. Now here we are. Now what am I going to do from here on out? When you talk about when you talk about protecting yourself, you know, is is that is there an element of mistrust? Do you think that comes from what you've been through and not wanting to open yourself up to, I guess, pain or the the danger of pain? Possibly, I think. I think a lot of that is the fact that I've always wanted to entertain people. I didn't want to be the one opinionated person that alienated people with my ideas and beliefs. I wanted to be an entertainer. That means everyone in the concert hall I want to entertain. I wanted to be liked by many, many, many people. And so with Waco, it's so, it's so divisive that it's almost to stand up for yourself. You have to pick a side and that's going to annoy a lot of people. That's really hard for me. I think that the reason that I haven't set out to do a podcast in the past or have an opinion page or maybe use that power that I was talking about earlier, especially today, it's like you have an opinion, you're going to get a hundred arrows shot at you, <laughs> especially online. I think it takes a certain amount of bravery to take a stance today, probably more so than in the past. So am I willing to put myself through that? Well, I'm 50. What's it really matter now? Now would be the time to put myself through that if, I, if I'm going to put through it, if I am going to go through that. But I can tell you I'm not, I don't take criticism well. I take it better now as I'm older. And I know that people are saying hurtful things out of ignorance. So I just need to be able to hold on to that. If I'm giving an opinion on, on Waco and someone attacks me personally or whatever, I have to realize that they're doing it out of ignorance and maybe even out of fear rather than anger or hatred. And that's what's hard to do. When someone attacks you, you think this is out of hatred. This is out of, you know, they just don't like me. That's just, they're just being mean. But it's, it's that person who is attacking you is actually doing it from a place of pain, I find, most of the time. But it's very hard to be sympathetic when someone's attacking you outright, especially online. I mean, yeah. you know, you're just reading a quote, a comment, and it can just affect you on a very, very negative. People, are, kids are killing themselves because of comments today. Yeah. They're literally committing suicide because somebody has that kind of influence and they're not even thinking about the pain maybe that person is going through. Mm. So that's what I, I'm trying to keep in my mind when, when I do this. But it's going to take a lot of vulnerability to do what I want to do now. And I don't know if I can handle it. I'm, I'm a little frightened of having the podcast and doing it every week or whatever. And I'm frightened at how I might react to people. You know, I might do what my family does and tend to get a little sarcastic and a little dark and, you know, aggressive and, 
lash out at that person. But if I can overcome that and try to understand them from a place of love, then that puts me in a much better place and hopefully them and the audience in a much better place. Hmm. But that's definitely going to take some discipline. Uh, Jules is an expert in annoying people. Uh, have you got some, Jules, have you got some advice in terms of you know, how you... <laughs> I've noticed that. <laughs> uh, what's the, what advice do you have for, for David in terms of putting yourself out there, being, you know, standing with a point, and even if it is divisive? Yes, look, I think, um, I, I, look, I feel all of those feelings, David, uh, you know, the, cause like you, I'm, I'm consider myself sensitive. So when people come back at me, it hurts, it really hurts. But I guess the question I have to answer deep inside myself is what do I stand for? Um, and, and how can I best say it so that I don't upset people I, I do not set out to upset people but i realize that uh, i'm i'm an upsetting kind of guy you know uh, and 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 i don't I, I i'm not comfortable with that but i do have a hunger or a thirst for the truth and i'm always listening what i call four let four levels down uh, i'm kind of listening be beyond the beyond the narrative and um and yeah that does you know that depends a lot on the person who I'm talking to. Like one of the things I love about you, David, is I can go in deep, you know, um, and I find you a remarkably open and generous human being. And for someone who's been through what you've been through, I'm in awe of your perspective, your point of view, what you're learning, what you've learned, and and that you, I feel you have now have a mission. You've digested so much of this horrific experience and that you're willing to offer your learnings to the world. I find that, um, I find that inspiring. Um, and that there's a rawness and a humanity to you, which is, um, yeah, it's priceless in my opinion, you know, it's priceless. Yeah. Um, I, I, I have a question, you know, listened, uh, it's so interesting listening to Andre's questions and your answers and I go, Oh wow, that's so good. That is so good. <laughs> yeah. And then I hear my question and your response, and I'm going, oh, oh. But anyway, the question that I have is, um, how have you dealt with, you know, like the 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 media narrative and the story about Waco um, that we're all presented with is so vastly different to your experience. And when I hear you talk about Waco, I go, my God, how do you deal with that deluge of media that's so anti-David, that's so so not about, well, I'm not even sure what my question is that I'm trying to ask, to be honest. Andre, can you, could you help me out here? Do you, do you, do you get a sense of what I'm trying to ask? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think I think you had it. I mean, how do you deal with uh, with that the total gap between reality and how it's portrayed? You know, how and what what and even today, you you talk to people and they have this. They might have been a they might have been toddlers when it happened, but they've just got this thing that's being fed to them. Does that still cause you anger? Absolutely. 
Yeah, it's very frustrating. Each individual person that comes here usually has a preconceived idea, especially if they hadn't seen the series. They very Even if they've seen the series, there's other dimensions that are being missed. But when the people come in and they're just like, David Koresh is this or that. And I go, okay, this is going to be a hard one. And we have to put a lot of time in and go step by step with this person to show the other side. And I'm not defending David. I'm not trying to get them to leave saying, oh, David Koresh maybe wasn't that bad of a guy. I'm trying to get them to say all these other people weren't. But there's things you don't know about David either. This happened the other day. Yesterday, I had someone, some woman said to me, so that guy, David, I mean, what do you think of David after all this? I mean, he's obviously going to hell, right? And she was, you know, Christian or whatever. And I said, well, it says, judge not, least thou be judged. And I think there's probably a reason for that. You know, there's scriptures that talk, and I had to go through it with her on the level of Christianity and say, there's a reason you're not supposed to judge someone because you don't know what happened to them as a kid. You don't know why they are the way they are or what they did the way they did. But people just seem to love to be in that position where I'm better than him. And I think it happens daily to all of us. We do it even on a subconscious level. I remember when I had a really good job living in Austin for a, and I never looked down on people, but I had this good job. And when I would go out and my server would wait on me, I'd be like, that's a server. I have a white collar, I have a white shirt on and the tie, you know, just that little, and I hated that. I'm like, dude, you know, I had to battle myself. And then I became a server at one point after having that white shirt. And then I had to sit there and deal with those attitudes, but I got it. And I, God gave me the job of being a server, I think, to serve <laughs> and realize how humbling that is and what that really means. So. I can see someone who maybe is not as spiritual definitely being judgmental and in that, you know, as uh, what I call, what I call elitists, you know, I've met a few in my day and they just think that they're better and, you know, if when the whole shithouse goes up that they deserve a, a, they deserve a spot on the ark just for having money or just for being, you know, royalty or having a certain family member or whatever it is. It can be anything. They're VIP, right? And I think that's detrimental to people who have that kind of attitude. Tell, tell us about David Koresh. I'm sorry, sorry, before... Oh. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I didn't answer his question. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah. Um, okay. I, I just think, I think there was something really interesting in what uh, what you, your question, Jules, and around around the perception of what happened and the controlling the perception. Um, can we are we able to take a step back a little bit? You know, in an era where you've got fake news being spouted by the president, you've got um, the manipulation of Facebook. You've even got the co-founder of Facebook talking about how it needs to be broken up because it's just it just controls too much information. You know, so it's becoming a really acutely kind of conscious thing at the moment that um, there is manipulation of media and people people are being controlled a little bit in terms of the ideas that they're, you know, that they're circ that's circulating in their bubble. Uh, so, what, so what Jules was talking about is not a new thing, of course, but it just seems to be ramping up in terms of the consciousness of, of where we are at the moment. But do you notice... Like the people that you're talking to, the people that come into Mount Carmel and uh, they're open to a bigger 
story around what happened. Do you, do do you get a sense that there's that there are certain types of people that are more open to what happened, and there are certain types of people that are totally fixed and totally indoctrinated and 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 that kind of that story around it. Yeah, you know there there are I I am seeing more people that are coming here that are open to it and have seen a different way, and it's usually they come with that one relative who doesn't want to get out of the car. They don't want to go in because they've made their mind up about David Koresh and about the people here from what they saw. All news reports, all media reports, and they just can't get through to them for some reason. They're just they're just so set in it. I think, it comes, and it's usually older people. So I think a lot of them are used to, especially if you're older, 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 where you can remember maybe Walter Cronkite where you got your truth from the nightly news. He was the most trusted American for a reason. People believed what he said. And I, it was definitely, that was a different era. <laughs> so those people, and that's a really interesting question. It's one of the things that the FBI did, Jeff Jamar and the, oh, the other guy, uh, uh, Byron Sage, and there was another one. One of the other major FBI guys, they went around to VFW halls after Waco, and they did a VFW tour, and they talked to the veterans of foreign wars, that's what VFW was here, and they went and they talked to the old timers, the Vietnam veterans, the World War II veterans at the time who were left, and that's their, that was their target. They went and they spoke to people about David Koresh and about FBI and, and why they were there. They were there to get this criminal. They were to get there to get this guy who was converting firearms, doing this to the women and had all these kids and he was beating the kids. I mean, all the stuff that they said. And it was, I always found that very interesting that that was their target group. But it was those old timers. It was the baby boomers. Those were the people they were trying to reach. And they did it on a very personal level. And I, I guess it was very effective because it's been very effective for many, many, many years. And it's always been kind of the newer generation that would see the FLIR tape and go, oh my God, what is this infrared stuff? That's crazy. Then you get the military types who just believe they're trained to do a job and they see what the FBI did here as being a military move. And military people don't think what the FBI did was very effective at all. They, they said they would never have done it that way. Uh, they're very, very critical. But these are also the same people that would kill you if given the order, okay? That would have driven the tags in as well. Um, oh, boy, that's a great question, man. So, yeah, I'm, you, we always get that one or two. And be it myself or Eddie who's giving a tour, one of the greatest thrills is turning him around at the end of it, even if it's, it takes 20 minutes or 40 minutes. That person we show some pictures to, we show here's a picture of the hostage rescue team, individual for the FBI, posing in front of a dead body. Here's another hostage rescue team member posing in front of the same corpse. Here's the third posing in front of the same corpse. It's the attitude of the people that were here. Here's a picture of them sifting through evidence and there's 10 bottles of bleach at their, at their feet while they're sifting through. Why do they have bleach at a crime scene if they don't have anything to hide? You know, then you have to go through the front door who fired first, right? Indicated San Antonio that the first shots were fired at the dogs, and then the other agents heard those shots and thought it was the people inside shooting and then started shooting in the front door. So you have to take them through it one by one. And usually by the time we're done with the CS gas, with the kids in the in the bunker and, and 
you show you show, you show you a picture of where the tank plowed through the bunker, plowed through the building to get to the bunker to specifically gas the children. Usually we have them at that point. It's pretty amazing to see somebody turn around, but it takes a lot of work. You got to show the pictures and you got to go through all the steps. So it's tiring and satisfying at the same time. Which is there a? Um, I'm sorry, Jules. To, to um, hey, go for it. Go for it. Go for it. Um, would you describe as there a certain uh, psychographical background, or you know, you were talking before about white collar elite? Is there a certain type of person that is more that is generally just more open to the truth? Do you think? Younger. That's the word that comes to mind. Younger, as they're more open. But yeah, yeah, I'd say thirty down. Interesting. They tend to be more open. Or extreme. Like, look, honestly, if I have to put a politically a political party, it would be Republicans. And I think a lot of them are open to the truth just because they Clinton was in office at the time. They really don't like Clinton. Either of them. But I, as a general, I'd say younger. Hmm. The younger people tend to see see a little more. Then you think of the amount of information they're getting from the internet. That's a new thing. I mean, so uh, people teaching sociology, that's going to be, you know, part of the classes from here to come. Is what kind of information are people getting from the net? What kind of decisions they're making with their lives? How are they seeing the truth differently than someone who only had ABC, CBS, and NBC growing up? They're going to see the truth very differently. When you think about everything that's at our disposal now in terms of communication and social social media, social media and that kind of thing, how do you imagine? Like, imagine if if Waco happened today, how how would it have played out? Do you think? Just in terms of- you know, somebody asked me that question the other day on the tour. I think it'd have been very different because everyone had a camera. Everyone could film everything and get it right onto the internet. I don't think they could have gotten away with what they did here. There's no way they would have gotten the that. Yeah, they could not have controlled it. What would they have had to have done? Ugh, there, there's nothing they could have. Maybe a small EMP. They would have had to have fried everyone's devices. So they probably, if thinking about it now, would have had to have some kind of small EMP charge that would have fried most of the phones in the building. That's the only way I think that they could have controlled it. Or they would have had to shut down maybe the cell towers in the area. That would have been very difficult. I don't know. These are speculations. But yeah, it would have been much different today. Cool. Maybe maybe that's why we're not seeing more of this happening. Maybe that's why they backed off quite a bit. Yeah. Right. I'll go back to you, Jules. Sorry. Oh no, don't be sorry. No, I'm 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 happy to roll, mate. I'm really happy. I'm really, I think you've you really bought some great stuff forward there about the role of the media and and um, you know there's um. I want you to answer this in like less than four sentences. What really happened at Waco? I think what really happened at Waco was the government screwed up so badly that they had to use whatever tools they could 
to destroy a community and all the evidence that they possibly could. And they did it very successfully. And... Wow, that's powerful. That's really powerful, mate. I think you've just said something so fucking fundamentally important. What, and it's the same thing, within three or four sentences. What does the world need to know about Waco? That it can happen again. That things like Waco have happened throughout history. 70 AD, the Romans going in Jerusalem. Uh, last zealot group of Jews hanging out at Masada. The Romans taking three years to build a ramp up Masada to kill those Jews and those Jews not standing for them. Taking their own lives in the face of a Roman victory. That's a phenomenal story. Really happened, 780. This stuff has been going on as long as people have been in power and wanted to keep that power at any cost. People are, people are, it's collateral damage when it comes to someone keeping power or not. So, so let me ask the question again. And again, three or four, three or four sentences. What does the world need to know about Waco? <laughs> I think the world needs to know that they're lied to daily and that when they're making their decisions, they have to, their, a little voice needs to come up, pop in their head saying, is this one of those situations where I'm being lied to? And how do I find the truth and just realize that the worst can happen? And it can, history can repeat itself. It always has, and it always will. Beautiful, great answer, great answer. I, I want to know. I want to. I, 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 this is burning inside me, so I hope I'm not pushing an agenda here. But I, I really want to know. Um, I want to know about David Koresh. I want to know from your perspective. Like I, I've heard all of the media stuff, and he and, and it's almost like he's be, he's become this figurehead of everything that's fucking evil. Um, and and I've never heard, I've never heard. What was he like? What was the nature of your friendship with him? Why did you follow him? What was the impact that he had on you? How did he touch you? You know, um, tell me about your relationship with David Carrishan and who you found him to be sure i found him to be a very very deep individual who seemed almost he didn't fit himself in a lot of cases because when he was just being a person he was kind of he could be a bit rednecky you know he had the, the car and all that he played guitar but really he was just like he gave his whole life over to god very early on and a lot of people don't know this or want to know this about him, but he's the kind of person his stepbrother would say, his stepbrother would leave for work and he, Vernon, back when he was Vernon, would be reading a Bible. His stepbrother would come back from work eight hours later, Vernon would be in the same spot reading the Bible. So this is a kid who spent hours a day reading scripture. He really wanted to know it. When so, he found so, 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 what does that mean? He gave his life to God. To me, it just means that he would do whatever to bring someone to an understanding of the truth. Um, when he found out 
and I'm getting away from your question here. I see that when he found out that there was a prophet living in Waco, he dropped everything to come and serve that prophet, being Lois Roden. To the point with four years, he did whatever she said. And then he started all of a sudden getting these visions and started to reveal the seven seals to people. And then Lois one day said, it looks like God has raised up the seventh angel's messenger and Vernon's going to be teaching the class today. And but that, 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 that description of David Koresh sounds like he's a nutbag. So tell me about David. Okay. I think there's other descriptions that make him sound like a nutbag worse than that one, but that's neither here nor there. Um, he was, he was, he was, kind of, he was soft-spoken most of the time. He was very much how he was played in the six-part series, which most people don't get about him. And it was just like, you know, hey, I know some stuff. You want to come over and jam? I will jam. I'd like to show you some scripture. What does God say here? What, is, what does that say, Dave? Read that for yourself. And yeah, that's interesting. Huh? What about over here? If we read this chapter. What does that say there? Huh? Okay. And by the end, you've had this study with David, and you didn't feel like you were being indoctrinated. You felt like you were seeing the book being opened for the first time and you were reading maybe something you read before that did not make sense to you personally but now that he's showing it to you and you're reading it yourself it makes sense and in some cases that's just his presence being there and pointing it out to you and so you start to say how did that just happen and then there'll be another scripture I've read that before this never made any sense to me or I've never read that but I know that wouldn't have made any sense to me had he not pointed this out. So that goes on and on and on and on and becomes more and more and more convincing that this is someone that really gets it. Now, when you're hanging out with David, like say we're in his Camaro and we're going to Whataburger together, we're going to have a beer at a bar or something, you know, he's just like an average everyday guy talking to different people at the bar, but he never did anything average or ordinary he didn't go to the bar just to have a drink he went to the bar in case there was someone there that wanted to talk about god or a loss or something that they're feeling very void inside and they want more and then david can come in and say well have you ever considered this scripture that talks about what you're feeling and you know he always used every single minute of his life to bring someone to the truth or as an object lesson I've never seen anyone like that. Like I said earlier, I've spent a lot of time, I've wasted a lot of time in my life. I don't picture David Koresh wasting any time of his life. He always had a purpose. It was very strange. It's like he could plant a seed in someone and over the course of a week or a month or even a year, watch that seed grow. And he did that consistently. He would maybe meet someone at a bar, have them come back, be given a study. He could have been up for two days giving studies to other people. He would fall asleep, given the study, wake up two or three minutes later and continue on where he'd left off. Weirdest thing. He was just totally driven until the person left or went home. That's when he would get sleep. I mean, you know, and like I said, if one person came and left and another person came and wanted David to give him a study, he would. What is it? What is it that you never think? Seen what is it that what is it that you think people need to know about David Koresh? 
that he was real, that he wasn't a con man, whether you like him or not, whether you think he was insane or not, or you think he was a sociopath, a psychopath, or whatever other path you want to put in there. He absolutely believed that he was a messenger uh, from a div divine source, and he lived his entire life um, sincerely trying to bring that about, to, to do what, to the best of his ability, what he believed he, he was supposed to do for God. Everything was about God. Thank you. Can I ask, speaking of paths, what, if David Koresh's life hadn't been cut short, if, if uh, you know, if things hadn't been cut short, what would, what would it be today, do you think? What would David Koresh be today? What would, what would the church be today? What would the family be today? I don't know. That's a very tough question. Um, according to the research in my book, he'd probably be in jail or just getting out of jail for something. Um, I talk about a catch-22. In other words, he was either a pedophile or polygamist. Technically, under Texas law, he wasn't a pedophile because it was 14 with parental consent, and Michelle conceived, or Michelle had serenity at 14. So they would have had to prove that she conceived at 13, which probably would have been hard, but he had multiple wives, maybe not legally, Actually, they weren't legal, right? So I think Rachel was only his only legal wife. So that's just that's that's a tough conjecture. Would they have had him on the firearms violation? Technically, he had a lower receivers and upper receivers from different manufacturers. He's putting them together and selling them to gun shows. It's been indicated in some of the documentation that he did not think that was illegal, and that the ATF undercover guys said were showing the statues where it was illegal. So there's a part of me that thinks that. He didn't know what he was doing. But then the government also claims that of all the 258 firearms that were here, I think it's 258, I'll have to double check that number, that, that were going to gun shows to be bought and sold, that four of them were converted to fully automatic weapons, only four. But even if the four were converted to fully automatic weapons, that would mean that they would have to pay a tax, a $200 tax. So it appears like he was definitely guilty of something on the books well, breaking the law, if you will. The question is, what kind of punishment meted it would be meted out? Maybe five-year sentence for having four fully automatic weapons that aren't registered with the government. That's about what it would be, five to seven years. So you take that in terms of coming in and destroying a whole community and gassing kids to death, and that doesn't really compute. It just doesn't compute. What they did here for whatever he could have been doing wrong doesn't compute. But definitely enough authorities were interested where I think something was going to break at some point. So I don't know if the community would still be here or not. That's a, a tough question. I don't know. I don't know. Let me put it this way. Let's say that the community went on, right? And they found that David Crest was not guilty of anything and they let him continue being himself and being here. I think the question is, would Dave Thibodeau still be here 25 years later? And I'm pretty safe to say probably not because I don't think I could have been in that kind of structure for that kind of time. And I certainly wouldn't have been celibate for 25 years. I can promise you that. So yeah, I, I, we could probably say my penis would have been like a flagpole leading me right the hell out of this place.
<laughs> I don't think we should say that actually, but uh, that was for the benefit of you guys. Anyway, I think I've been here for 25 years, but I did take it a day at a time. And, you know, I, I looked at it as like a challenge, like this place was the boot camp of, of, of God's army, if you will. Hmm. I didn't really look at that term, but my point is that if I had to suffer some things, give up some things to get a higher understanding of the father, I was willing to do that. And I was willing to do that in good consciousness. I felt very strong here with the group. I could overcome things I couldn't overcome on my own. Like I could be faced with temptation and not fall to that temptation because I had the group behind me. So I found an inner power and strength being here that I had never had on my own as a 23-year-old kid living in Hollywood. So that was an awesome thing. I mean, to understand that, feel that, to know that I'm even overcoming temptation in my dreams because I'm seeing a higher vision, a higher power, a higher scope. In other words, I'm trying to bring my own iniquities up, sin less and overcome more temptations. And I'm even doing that in my sleep. In other words, being faced with maybe a naked woman in my dream and, and, and saying, no, you have to be the right woman. That's powerful thing for someone like me who just didn't really care and you know just loved women period hmm. i want to give that up so so I, I i'd like to just change tack a little bit um andre what are you what are you learning or what are you observing in this conversation so far uh some remarkable uh, inspection, I think, uh, and um, yeah, some really, some real opening up and some real, some real soul searching, which is cool. But then also, um, uh, yeah, just a just a whole lot of just a whole lot of history and a whole lot of uh, uh, lessons with that as well. Really cool. Yeah, what, what I'm observing is, or the thing that I'm finding the most surprising, is there are areas that David hasn't thought about, or considered, or processed. That, you know, to me seem really fundamentally important to being able to, um, you know, really digest this uh, situation. I think that's one of the one of the main my main observations, you know, for 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 you, David, to really move, change gears. There's some there are some things for you to really deeply consider. Well, a lot of that I'm sure has to do with walking away for almost 20 years and just going mm. back to grammar and not really wanting to face anymore. I was done mm. for a while. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, look, that's really understandable, I think. Um, yeah, and I think a good point to make, and I especially want to make this for the future of this podcast, they would do things like, all right, I just been in a religious group for a year, for two years, I come out of this, and they put me on hardball up against George Stephanopoulos, who is a seasoned, seasoned debater and mouthpiece for the Clinton government, okay? That's the guy that they're going to have me go against. It's, it's not a very fair. Of course, he's going to kick my ass in a fucking debate. It's ridiculous. 
but that's the kind of shit they do. You know, they take the master, master manipulator and master, um, uh, what do they call it? Um, sound bite. The, the, man, the man that is the master of the sound bite, and they're going to put him on a stage with me in a national forum like Hardball, which is a show. And I'm supposed to hold my own. No, you know, obviously, I, I, that's just, a, I was not prepared for that in any sense of the word after being in a religious group. And they, they did that stuff a lot. Ted Koppel, I was supposed to do Ted Koppel's show. I didn't know who Ted Koppel was. I'd been in this group for two years. And they were going to play on Ted Koppel, and I canceled Ted Koppel to do a current affair. And I did a current affair because the woman was on the ground here for the whole 51 days, and she had interviewed other people and seemed to really care about the story where I didn't know Ted Koppel from a hole in the ground. So because I went with the current affair, Ted Koppel was all like, said something, apparently Mr. Thibodeau got a better deal and will not be on the show tonight. I said, well, screw you, Bob. I don't know who the hell you are. I don't, you know, I don't know. I just come out of this. You know, my friends had just died, and I'm supposed to know who I'm supposed to interview with. So not having people, and I had an attorney who really wanted me to do current affair because there was money involved. So I, I could have cared less about money. The point is, you need, you know, if you're coming out of a situation like this and you don't know the media, you need someone to help direct you through that that jungle. There was no one there for me. It was all learn on your own, kid. Here you go. Mm. It was very frustrating. Mm. Andre's got something cooking. I can see it, dude. <laughs> no, I think there's, I think there's more. I think there's more there. There's more. Uh, but I think it's another podcast. I think it's another episode. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we're kind of drawing to a close. Is my kind of feel today. But I, I think, man, that was awesome. Like, if you look back as a, is this is kind of episode far out. Mm. yeah yeah there's some great stuff in this there's some really 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 powerful stuff oh boy yeah david i think i think look i just want to acknowledge your courage david i i just think mate i know some of these questions i'm asking they're fucking tough they're fucking tough if i'm doing this i'm in it for the right this this is that's why that's why you guys are here with me you know it's like i i acknowledged a long time ago that I needed guys like you to, to do this. I want to do this right. I want it to be fucking spectacular. I'm not kidding. Mm, mm. I want to blow people away. How yeah, do you real. feel about it? How do you how do you feel after this mm. after this kind of first did you make the right decision? Did you have teamed up with the Germans and the the French uh, Well let me put it this way. Seeing how we don't have any formal contract, if I don't have to sue you for anything, then yes, I'll feel like I made the right decision. <laughs> so if we all shoot straight with each other and you got all don't try to fuck me later, then yes, I will feel like I made the right decision. Right. How's that? I do feel like I made the right decision, though. Mm. What have we learned from this first conversation? I think that there's a lot more layers that, and that's what I want. I want to, I want to get the deeper layers, and I think we started that process very well here. I'm, a, I'm I think I, I hope that you guys are more excited about the project now than before. I would think you would be. Mm. Mm.